0: Welcome to the weekly podcast channel for the Wilmington Church of Christ. We hope that this channel inspires and encourages you to take the gospel to all people, transforms hearts to be like Christ, and trains disciples to make disciples. For more information about our church, please go to wcconline.org. Enjoy the message. Seaside sunsets, silver lining around the clouds, birds fly singing, making such a joyful sound. And thoughts of heaven somehow seem to fill my mind, but I can't even imagine what it is I'm going to find. I can't wait to get to heaven where you wipe away all my tears. In six days, you created everything you've been working on heaven for 2,000 years. You know, I think God has given us poets and artists and even authors so that we can get glimpses and get these glimpses of heaven that we're supposed to have to keep us strong, to help us as we walk this road. And I think um, sometimes we, we just need to let ourselves see the beauty of the glimpses. You know, I... I love the way some authors write stories. I am a fantasy fiction fanatic. Um, and when I, here, here's, let me give you a perspective on this. couple of, for some of you, this will make sense. I don't care if it's Star Wars or Star Trek or Doctor Who. I'm, I'm in on all of it, all right? For others of you, this will make more sense. I have three bookshelves in my library at home. Uh, one of them has like some notebooks with my notes from Bible stuff I've studied and some of my favorite uh, biblical authors and various things and some of my kids' books on it and uh, a few other things on it. One of them has actually more of my wife's trinkets than books. Um, But then some family books and a um, a few books about leadership and some things like that. And then there's a third bookshelf and the entire shelf is all fantasy fiction. Okay? I love fantasy fiction novels. And I love them because they... They tell these epic stories. The authors of fantasy fiction are always telling you these epic stories, especially the great ones. I mean, The Lord of the Rings, um, The, the um, Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Um, I've got this set up here that you may not have ever ho- heard of um, by an author called Denita K. Paul. But the reason I have this up here is there's a very special set of fantasy fiction books for me because I was at a men's uh, weekend weekend probably 10 years ago, give or take, I don't remember exactly. And at that time, uh, being in full-time ministry, they gave me a $25 gift certificate to the bookstore. And they had all these men's books, you know, growing men and raising men. And I don't know if you know, I have four daughters. So, um, but they had these fantasy fiction books and they were $6 a piece for the set. I don't know if you do math very quick, but $25, $6 for four books is $24, right? So I got all these books for my $25 gift certificate. And I was so excited to get home and read them because I'd never seen them. And they were Christian fantasy fiction. And so they were going to have some Christian themes in them. And I love that. And so I get home and I get ready to start the very first one. And right down here at the bottom, I don't know if you can see it. You probably can't from where you're at. It says, author of Dragon Spell. So I go looking to figure out what Dragon Spell is. This is book two through five. There's no book one, which means I can't start reading them until I read book one. I was so frustrated. I had to get on Kindle or something to find book one, and and I struggled to find it. But I finally found it so I could read uh, the Dragon series that Donnie the Kay had written, and and I was so excited. But the reason you can't read the series is because if you don't read it with book one, you miss context, right? And any time we miss out on context, we don't read stories, we can't read stories the way they're intended to be read. And as we come to Revelation 21 and 22 this week, I want you to remember that we have to keep in mind context. Because far too often as Christians we read Revelation 21 and 22 of our Bibles and far too many Christians have made Revelation 21 and 22 the center of their faith. And they're not supposed to be. Now, they're important, and I think we need to have them. And I'm very excited that I get to talk to you this morning about heaven because I love heaven. I think we need these glimpses of heaven. I think we need to be in touch with all the chances to see anything that even looks like heaven. I think we need that in our lives, and, and we'll talk about that here this morning and why. But the reality is, far too often, we get all excited about Revelation 21 and 22 and we forget the context. And when we forget the context, we lose some of the meaning of the book, and especially of these chapters. You see, Revelation 21 and 22, for far too many Christians, is the climax of the story. Heaven, that's the goal. That's the end. That's the climax. Yeah. And, and listen, no guilt in this. I did the same thing. I mean, when I found out that Dale was going to preach all through Revelation, he did all this great study. He showed us all these beautiful things out of the Old Testament and how these images work together and how God had been speaking through the Old Testament the entire time to teach us Revelation. I have loved that series. And he gets to get right up to the end and then he doesn't get to preach it. I do. But as I studied and as I've looked, I realized Revelation 21 and 22 are not the climax of this story. Last week was when when all of the forces of evil and all of the forces of good line up in this final epic battle. That is the climax of the story that we are in. That is the climax of the story that the people this letter was written to were in. That is the climax of the story. When Jesus finally, once and for all, defeats evil. I think there's two reasons we struggle to see the climax the way we should. Number one, I think we struggle because heaven's so much more fun. (laughs) I like talking about heaven. Battles and dragons and evil, and all that, that's not as fun. Lakes of fire are a little cool, but you know, it's a little harder. The other reason is the climax of the story is evil lines up with all its forces, gathering everything it has to come against the forces of good. And Jesus comes out riding out on a white horse. It's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? Because you have all these forces lined up against each other, and Jesus goes, Okay, we're done. And that's it, there's no battle. There's no epic struggle of swords clashing in people. Jesus just goes, we're done. It's over. That's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? And that's the climax of the story. And it's important to understand because of this. Far too often, even in the church, we have a tendency to talk about good versus evil as though they're equal. They are not. These are not equal forces. There is no battle when God says, we're going to do it my way. This is it. God is always in charge. Jesus always has the power. And when we get to the end, when Jesus decides to finally, as we're going to read here in a minute, make all things new, first he's got to end all things that are old. But he's going to do it with a word, he's going to just be done. But in the meantime, we live in the midst of the battle. And context matters. As we read Revelation 21 and 22, I want to make sure that we don't forget the context of it in this letter. Okay? And here's the other thing. Not only do we get excited about Revelation 21 and 22 because heaven's so much more fun, um, but but it's not just you and me. John did the same thing. I mean, it's natural to do. So so don't feel bad. Don't feel guilty. Because John did the same thing. If you read the beginning of Revelation um Chapter 1. Listen, listen to what we read again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which Dale continues to point out, and we need to remember this is Jesus revealing himself. It is a re- revelation about Jesus and it is a revelation from Jesus. Okay? This is not John's revelation, John just wrote it down. This is Jesus' revelation. All right. Which God gave him to show to his bondservant the things which must soon take place. The reason Jesus gave us this revelation, especially the reason he gave it to John when he did, is because of things that were coming. And he wanted them to know about it. And when you read this book, especially from chapter 6 to chapter 20, you're not reading about heaven. You're reading about an epic struggle. It's an epic struggle that is continuing between good and evil, not equal forces on either side, but a battle where good people are continuing to struggle to remain godly, to remain holy, to remain righteous as evil continues to ramp up its battle. We, we read about evil ramping up. And then a reminder that Good wins. And then evil ramps up more a second time. And there's a reminder, of, but don't forget, good wins. In heaven, everything's okay because good wins. And then there's this final battle where everything ramps up. And then we're told again, good wins. But throughout the text, we're reading about people who are struggling through it. Listen to what John says. John says, <coughs> Um, in verse 9, I, John, your brother, and fellow partaker in the tribulation. You, you see, John is writing to people in tribulation. They're surrounded by things that are wrong. Now, if you look before that, John does get a little excited, right? Because in verse 4 through verse 8, here's what, listen to what John says. And you can almost hear his, his giddiness. If if you read this in in connection to twenty one and twenty two, you you can hear the giddiness because four through eight are actually repeated in chapter twenty two. So John gets done seeing this revelation, and as he goes to write it down, he's got almost this, John. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, uh, grace, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from sin by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, a priest to, to his God and Father. And to him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who preached him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says he, the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then it's as if John stops because he realizes, okay, oh wait, okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. And the reason I say that is because these same verses are how 22 ends. And John starts there because like all of us, when we see where this thing is going, when we see where this thing ends, we we want to talk about the end. We, to talk about, we want to talk about Jesus coming back. We want to talk about Jesus coming back. We want to talk about this, this new heaven. We want to spend our time thinking about new heaven and how glorious heaven is. The problem is, if we spend our time focused on heaven and we miss where we are in the story, we will miss what we're trying to be taught throughout this entire book. And we can't do that because the book itself tells us, verse 3, Blessed are he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things written therein. Our our job is to remember the whole book and where we are in this story. And the context of Revelation 21 and 22 are are the end, not the climax. They're the celebration. I mean, they're the two minutes at the end of the last Star Wars movie where people are rejoicing and hugging and everybody's celebrating when the Emperor's dead and the Last Order's finally destroyed. That, this is just the two minutes. This, this is, this is the, the hobbits returning home after Mordor's been destroyed and Sauron's been killed by not-man. I don't know if you know that story. Sauron cannot be killed by any man, so a woman kills him. I got four daughters. Um, listen, we have to understand where we are in the story because, listen, this book, this letter, is a letter that is a revelation of Jesus, and it's easy to get excited, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. And as we read 21 and 22, do not land in 21 and 22 and make them the story. They're not. Okay? But they're important. They're just not the story. They're the end of the story. They're the celebration. You see, this is a letter that's written to seven churches. And I'm not going to read all through chapter 2 and 3 again. Dale did a good job. Go back, listen to all the sermons. They're out there on the web. You can go get them. But these are broken churches. Anybody ever been to a broken church? Come on, people, raise your hands. Are you sitting in church today? Anybody ever been to a broken church, right? Because I love you guys, but we're not perfect. And no church is. In fact, have you ever sat in a church? Now, in this case, probably not this one, right? But have you ever sat in church and gone, I don't think this is what God had in mind. (laughs) The people who are being written to are feeling that same thing. They look around them at the struggles and the conflicts and the things that aren't right, and they're going, I don't think this is what God intended. And you know what? They're right, and so are you. This is not how we were supposed to live. Life was not intended to be a great epic struggle for thousands of years. That's not God's plan. It's his plan B. Now, because God is who he is, I think it comes out a little more beautiful when you take broken things and make them more beautiful than when you started. But God's plan, his intention for us, got marred. And when we look around in context, and we look around not only at our church, but we look around at our world, especially today, I mean, golly, it just keeps coming, doesn't it? I've been joking lately that I think in August we should be looking for RoboCop to show up because I think that's the next thing we've got to face. It just keeps coming. And you can't look around right now at all the stuff that's going on and all the evil in the world and all the things that just seem to be wrong. And not look at them and go, this is wrong. But we got it. And and, and that's where we live. And as we come to Revelation 21 and 22, we have to recognize that these books exist, or these two chapters exist as a glimpse into hope, a glimpse into a different future, a glimpse into a different world. Because the one we're in is still embattled. we got to keep it in context. You see, the other thing we have to do is we have to keep these two chapters in context in order to truly understand them. We have to keep them in context of the book. Not just the book of Revelation, but the book, right? This, this book, this story, th- this story that's being told, this epic story of humanity, that unlike these is actually true. This is the reality of an epic story that we live in where the whole world, the entire universe, all that we know of as creation is actually at stake. And it's been at stake since chapter 3 of the first book of this story. And as we read Revelation, we have to understand that what we're reading is a story that tells us what's at stake. But it's connected to the beginning of the story. And, and you see this in Revelation starting in verse 21, verse 1. I mean, actually Nick already read this for us, but I'm going to read it again. We read the very first verse of 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. That little phrase right there, no longer any sea. Here's what you have to understand: According to Jews, and and in the images that Jews used, the sea is the image of chaos, and it is under the sea that nothingness exists. It is in the sea that it, that is it's this it's this place where creation does not happen. It is. It is reformed. In fact, if you read again in Genesis 1, here's what we read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. You see, this image of sea is this image of pre-creation, this image of chaos before God brings order to it. And what John is telling us when he says there was no longer any sea is that There is no longer any chaos. The creator of creators is going to make a new heaven and new earth, not not just out of chaos, but all chaos is going to be removed. This is going to be without any more option for chaos. But in this first story, or in the story we're in right now, the sea keeps showing up. In fact, six chapters in to the first part of the story, we read about the fact that man had gotten so evil that God dumped water on everything and covered everything with water again to start over and recreate it. And because our own lives look very similar to what Noah was experiencing in the world Noah lived in, God has to recreate us. That's why as Christians, one of the things that God gave us to do is baptism. Because in baptism, we recreate this image of being buried beneath the chaos, being buried beneath the death, being buried beneath the order and the organization, being buried without God and raised to new life out of the water, recreated new creation, just like the first creation. It's a beautiful picture. It's also a picture of how Jesus went into the grave and came back out. And those images are there, and John is speaking to those images as he starts this, because these images exist in the epic tale that is the reality of this world. And John is speaking to all of that, and if you miss how these tales, how how this end of the story matches up with the beginning, you miss the context. Because the other thing we begin to read in the first part of the first story, we read these three, we read these three uh or four curses that happened because of man's sin. And I'm just going to, uh, if you want to read these in chapter three, you can go there. The, the verses may pop up behind me. I'm going to tell them because in first service I took too long, and so I'm going to shorten things just a little bit. All right. I don't want to go too long. All right. I don't want to bore you. I had kids falling asleep in first service. All right. So, but here's the thing, there are four curses we see happen in chapter 3 after man sins. The first is man sins, and then um, we immediately see that they look at each other and they realize they're naked for the first time, and so what do they do? They cover themselves. And then when God shows up, they hide. You see, the first thing that broke when man sinned was his relationship with himself. With sin, we break our relationship with ourselves. We don't trust ourselves anymore. We are afraid of who we are. And and it's because of the deceit of Satan that we believe this lie that somehow, if we will follow our own will and our own wisdom and our own ability to lead our own life, that somehow we can be like God. You know why that's a lie? We're already like God. (laughs) We were made like God. We're not God but we're like him. The difference is we try to know good and evil on our terms instead of on his terms. If Adam had just kept walking with God every day in the garden, I'm sure God would have helped him know all the wisdom he needed to know. But he wanted to get to it on his own. Get there quicker. And how are we different from Adam? We all do that. We try to live out of our own wisdom instead of the wisdom of God. And it creates conflict inside of us. All of us. But listen to what happens when God makes all things new. Verse 4 of Revelation 21. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away and the new has come. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And where does he start? He renews our relationship with us and the second curse we see is a brokenness of us of what is you and me together as soon as God shows up and and he looks for Adam he says where are you and Adam says I I realized I was naked so I hid and what's God say who told you you were naked and here's what Adam says well the woman you gave me second curse is the brokenness of the relationship between people particularly between men and women. But it continues to grow and be between all people as in just the next chapter we see that between two brothers there's a brokenness and one kills the other. And all this brokenness and this curse of brokenness of relationships continues to grow because, because we chose to go our own way. But when death is defeated, and all of evil is vanquished for good, and Jesus starts the new heaven and new earth. In verse 8 we read this, the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the immoral persons and the sorcerers and idolaters and all the liars and their part will be in the lake of fire. So we don't have to worry about them. And in verse 24 we read this, and the nations the nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. What's John saying us, he's saying to us that all our relationships will be healed and all this fighting and bickering and struggle and, and who's right and who's wrong and how do we live how do we live caring for each other and, and, and all of that goes away and all the nations that have been divided, divided since the Tower of Babel come back as one together again, in unity, in perfect unity with no more struggle and no more fighting. No more question of who's more important than who because all of us will think everybody else is more important than us. No more questions of should I wear it or not? No more fighting. There would just be peace between people because the curse will end when God makes all things new. We also need to recognize that the curse of creation and the curse that fell on creation will be gone. In Genesis chapter 3, we read that Adam is now going to have to work by the sweat of his brow to get his food. Just yesterday, my wife and I were talking about something, and something came up about, about how um, you know it'd be nice to have everything you need. And because I'm reading and studying this, I said, we used to, and someday we will again. It, God intended us to live a life where our needs are all met. We don't have to work by the sweat of our brow just to eat. What's more, in the center of the garden, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they weren't supposed to eat, but there was also the tree of life. And Adam and Eve get separated from that because they get driven from the garden and an angel gets put in front of the garden to keep them out of the garden so that they won't get back to the tree of life. And there are some people who think that's just cruel. Why didn't Jesus want it? Why didn't God want us to get back to the tree of life? Because the way we live now, we don't want it to go on forever. Do you? I'd sure like it to end someday. And if we got to the tree of life, it wouldn't end. But when the new heaven and the new earth come, chapter 22, then he showed me a river of life, verse 1. Clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb and in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for healing of the nations. When we return and God makes all things new again, the curse that has separated us from life and the curse of creation will be restored in a new garden where everything's perfect, and we are too. So we can live forever in perfection instead of in brokenness. Finally, the curse of our brokenness with God will be removed. When Adam and Eve were sent from the garden, they also were sent out of the presence of God. And where he had walked with them every day before that, he no longer walked with them every day. Their relationship with God was fractured so that there had to be an expanse between God and us. And the expanse between God and us exists because when imperfect things come into the presence of the perfect God, He is so perfect that His perfection eliminates imperfection, and He didn't want to destroy us completely. And so until He could make us perfect again to enter His kingdom, we could not be in His presence fully because if we come into His presence fully, we will be destroyed. But by the blood of the Lamb, we now are made perfect so that we can enter his presence again. Perfect beings coming before a perfect God to live in perfect life. Listen to what we read. Verse 22, And there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. The curse of unity with God will be removed once and for all. The context of 22 and tw- 21 and 22 is to let us know that when God, when the climax happens and Jesus finally comes and he says, okay, we're done. This is over. No more evil. And those of you who've been faithful, you get to come home. And I've made a new home. And we enter in. All the curses we've experienced will be gone. You see, we weren't supposed to live like this. This is not how God intended it to be. And it won't always be this way for those who are faithful. And here's the other thing we have to read in context. You see, from the beginning of time, God created man for one purpose, to reign and rule with him. Jesus talks about it like this. He talks about the marriage feast again and again and again. Jesus is always talking about marriage feasts. He's, he's ra- coming for his bride. The, 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 the son is coming for the bride, or the, or the groomsman is coming for the bride, or the bridegroom comes for the bride. And he's always talking about the wedding feast. And that's what 22, 21 and 22 are, is they are finally the bride and the groom coming together, and the bride has been perfected. And let me me show you this bride. Now she's first described as a city. Verse 2 of 21, And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. But in verse 10 we read this, And he carried me away in the spirit in great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like that of a costly stone as the stone of a crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. Oh, sorry, verse 9. Come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he begins to describe this holy city. Now, let me show you this holy city because there's something you have to understand about this bride in her perfect form. But there's some descriptions here of the bride that make it very clear of who God's talking about. Verse 12, It had a great high wall with twelve gates and, the gates, and at the gates twelve angels. And the names were written on them, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. This bride will be a bride that enters by way of the story of the sons of Israel. We will enter in, we will become bride if we enter in through the stories of the sons of Israel. I realize there are some today who say, you know, we don't need the Old Testament anymore. Well, the Bible says from beginning to end even here in Revelation chapter 21 that we enter through the story of the sons of Israel. The gateway to the city is the story of the sons of Israel. And there are several reasons for that. Number one, there is the reality that if we do not understand the Old Testament and the stories of the sons of Israel as it has been handed down to us by God through the men who wrote it down to us, then we can't understand what God is telling us in what we call our New Testament because it doesn't make sense. Because everybody in the New Testament was writing in a framework in a mindset that was set in the Old Testament. So if you don't read the Old Testament, you can't understand the New Testament. So we've got to enter in that way. The other thing is, is that the gateway into heaven is through the blood of Jesus. And guess what? Jesus is the result of the story of the sons of Israel. And so without the story of the sons of Israel, we will not be able to be the perfect bride of Christ. So we have to hang on. The Old Testament has stories of who God is and helps us see what God is doing. In in the world and helps us understand how God is moving. And it even helps us understand this story that we're reading right here in Revelation as it is written out. And we saw that there are like 465 verses and like 523 references to the Old Testament. I mean, this this book that we're reading even right now, this one little letter is also, you can't understand it if you don't understand the Old Testament. And so this is a, this is a body of people who are coming through the story of the sons of Israel. But listen to what else we read. Verse 13. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. On them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So understand, the entryway is through the story of the sons of Israel, but the foundation is the teachings of the apostle. The 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 base on which this this bride lives and grows and finds perfection is through the teaching of the apostle Matthew Mark Luke John. You get you get, if you if you miss the gospel you've missed it all, and you can enter through whatever gate you want you're going to miss it if the foundation is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the truth about who he was, and how he lived, and how we are now to live because of what he did here among us. When he came, and he lived, and he taught us, and he died, and he rose again. If you miss out on the gospel, you cannot be the perfect bride, because that's that's the foundation on which the bride is built. And so we hold tight to the gospel. As it is written and handed down to us again and again because it is built. The apostles, the twelve, their names are the foundation on which the bride is built. But there's something special about this city of Jerusalem. Verse 22 But I saw no temple in it. You know, the reason that the tribes of Israel came to Jerusalem time and again on pilgrimage was because of the temple. Because there was this sense that that's where God met with his people, was, was in the temple. And so you, you came to the temple. Even to this day, people go to the temple so they can see this one wall that still sits there, so they can somehow worship at the temple, even though the temple's completely almost destroyed. But in the bride that comes out, out, out of heaven, there's no temple. Why? For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. Everything that the church is supposed to be centers around this idea. God is in the midst of us. We are the temple of God if God dwells in us. And in John's description, this bride has been perfected at the end of time. But his whole picture of the bride is yes, a bride that enters through the story of Israel and his foundation is on the stories that the apostles have told and the teachings that they bring. But the essence of the city is is that God dwells in us. And we're not perfect yet, but sometimes when we let that truth sit in our hearts and we live out of it, boy, it sometimes looks like heaven, doesn't it? Have you ever met somebody who seems to live out of a heart that Jesus is in the center of all the time? Don't they kind of seem angelic? And don't you kind of want to be like that? Someday, and maybe someday soon, we will be perfectly living with God in our midst. Mm-hmm. This is the context. Revelation 21 and 22 set the stage or in this context from the beginning of the epic story where Adam and Eve are created to the end where there is a new heaven and a new earth. And the context of Revelation 21 and 22 matters because we need to understand that what we're being told is we weren't supposed to live like this and someday we won't again. We will instead be a perfect bride. Exactly what we're supposed to be as God brings us down into heaven for the marriage feast of the Lamb. But we also have to see Revelation 21 and 22 in the context of our struggle and of the struggle we're living in. Verse 9 of 22, actually starting in verse 8 of 22, we read, And I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw that I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Little aside, some people still do that. But here's a little clue as to whether it's an angel from God or an angel from somewhere else. (laughs) But he said to me, Don't do that. Angels from God will not let you worship them. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. What is the angel telling us? We can't read Revelation 21 and 22 and not remember that we do not live there. We live in the midst of an epic battle where things are still broken and someday they won't be. And we need that hope and we need to keep in mind that someday God's going to end this and it's not going to be forever because when we start to get tired and we start to struggle, someday it's going to end. Praise God. But we live in the midst of this rising of evil over and over as it gets worse and things get worse and worse. In fact, as he goes on in verse 10, he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who's filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Notice that what the angel says is, but we're not there yet. This is what's going to happen, but we're not there yet. There are still wrong people doing wrong. There are still filthy people who are filthy. But here's why you get this glimpse of heaven, and here's why you have the message of this whole book, and here's why I'm giving this to you. Because the righteous people need to practice righteousness, and the holy people need to keep themselves holy. They have work to do. Do you see this? The wrong and the filthy, they just are. But the righteous and the holy have work to do. It is work to live faithful to Jesus in a world that is against faithfulness to Jesus that is constantly trying to pull us away and so it is hard sometimes and there are times when we get to the point where we need something to remind us that we are not alone that this battle has been going on since the beginning of time and we are in it but it is almost at an end and as evil rises that is a sign to us that the end is near That is a a hope for us. As evil gains ground, we need to know that all that means is evil is gathering for the epic battle that won't even be a battle because Jesus is going to end it when he's good and ready so that we will stay faithful to him because when it's done, we won't have to live like this anymore. When it's done, the curses will all be removed and we will enter into the marriage with Jesus to reign and rule forever with him as we were intended to be. That's why we have this book. That's why we have these last chapters in this glimpse of heaven. To remind us that it won't always be this way. So that we can stand strong in the midst of it. Because he goes on in verse 14 to say this. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Who gets to enter? Those who have washed their robes white. What have we already learned from Revelation about those who wash their robes white? Who are these people? There are people who have been washed white by the blood of Jesus and the word of their testimony. They stayed faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the truth that God is at work, even now. And when you think and when you hear, and when John hears that, that this is here, this book is written, this letter is written, so that we can remain faithful, so that we can hold to faith, so that we can remember the blood of Jesus and stick to the word of the testimony that God is at work and we can hold on tight. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And those who hear the words of this book, they say, Come. And those who are thirsty, come. Because sometimes, as we're in the epic battle, before the final conflict, before we get to the crescendo of the story. We just need a reason to take another step. To keep going. So that we will be called faithful. And when we do that, when we walk one step, that next step, and we keep faithful, we know that we are one step closer to the climax of the story when Jesus says that's it. The old will pass away and the new will come. And when you feel tired and you're struggling with your faith and you're in those moments where everything around us seems to not make sense because we're not supposed to live like this. Breathe this prayer. Let it be. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the context of these chapters. They exist to give us hope when everything else seems hopeless. When everything else seems so bad. Because good wins. Jesus and everything will be made new. One of the ways that we hold tight to our faith, especially when it seems like we're holding on by a thread, (laughs) is to just remember what Jesus already did. The epic battle really has already been fought. I mean, the battle... That conquered the power of evil is over. But oftentimes we aren't we struggle to live like it's over, right? And that's why the church is encouraged to take communion. To remind ourselves that the epic battle is already taking place. Our sins are already forgiven. The curse of death is broken. The curse of of sin is broken, the power over us is broken, so that we might live a little more into it. And here we do that every week. And if you're at home, you might want to get your uh, juice and your bread ready. And those of you here, you'll want to take off the top foil first. Make sure that that clear foil comes off before the the dark foil. Otherwise, you'll never get to your bread. And as we take communion, I want you to remember that the epic battle has already ended. Just the final word has not been spoken. The epic battle has been won. The final word has not been spoken. Between here and there, remind yourself that Jesus has already done everything necessary for us to enter into the throne room of God. If we will just stay faithful the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. I'm going to pray and then you can take of communion. Father in heaven, as we come before you again and we look at this bread and this and this uh, fruit of the vine representing your body and your blood, God, remind us that you have already won. And help us to start to live more into the truth that, that you have conquered. We're just awaiting the final word and so to stand faithful. What is required of us is not to win some epic battle. What is required of us is not to do some epic work, but to simply stay faithful and believing and committing ourselves to the testimony of what you've done and what you are doing. The blood of your of your sacrifice, and the word of our testimony. Let us hold on tightly to you, Lord. And in that, find victory. Lord, as we take this morning, remind us of your grace and your love for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. If this message has inspired you or encouraged you, we would love if you shared it with a friend. To help support ministries like this one, go to wcconline.org slash donate.